Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talked to Matt Turnauer, the director of Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. Let's make clear that this conversation is full of adult content. The film profiles Scotty Bowers, who catered to the sexual appetites of Hollywood's golden age celebrities. Gay, lesbian, bisexual, threesomes, orgies, you name it. Scotty's client list included Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, George Cukor, Walter Pidgeon, Charles Lawton, Cole Porter, and many, many more. In the 1940s, Scotty operated a Hollywood gas station with an adjacent camper where he would arrange sexual liaisons for his customers or fulfill their desires himself. These were closely held secrets for years until he published his 2012 memoir titled Full Service. The book rewrites a Hollywood mythology that lasted for decades. Here is Scotty in the film speaking about Cary Grant's same-sex relationships. Before he became an actor, a known actor, Cary Grant was living with Ori Kelly in New York, who was a mad queen. Ori Kelly was a dress designer. Actually, he got three Oscars for dress design. Some like it hot. Ori Kelly! And he came out here and lived here for a year and a half together. Then he met Randolph Scott and left Ori, dropped him like a hot potato because he wanted to steer clear for fear they might think he's gay if he's with someone who's known to be gay. The book Full Service caused an uproar. That's around the time that Matt began filming with Scotty and interviewing others, such as the actor Stephen Fry. People get very angry at the idea of these beloved Hollywood icons being revealed to have secrets. But actually, all it is that Scotty is doing is revealing that these people were real. They were actual people, flesh and blood, like us. Scotty was turning 90 when his book came out, but he was as sharp as someone 30 years younger. Matt followed him over two years uncovering his past. The film supplies substantial evidence that Scotty's stories hold up. In our conversation, Matt says his intentions were bigger than simply dredging up old gossip. Hollywood's weird, you know. People like to dismiss it as being unimportant and frivolous. It's written off a lot because it has frivolous parts to it. But it's the major story of the 20th century. I think, you know, World War I, World War II, and Hollywood, I think, might be the top three. Uh, so why shouldn't we look at uh, Hollywood through the lens of sexuality? I think we really must. Matt is a longtime writer for Vanity Fair. His previous films are... Valentino, The Last Emperor, about the Italian fashion designer, and Citizen Jane, Battle for the City, about the writer and activist Jane Jacobs. Matt spoke about those films on episode 45. He has a documentary coming out later this year called Studio 54, and another due next year about the political operative Roy Cohn. Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood had its world premiere last year at the Toronto Film Festival and arrives in theaters this summer. 
The film has a dedication to the memory of Gore Vidal, the prolific novelist, essayist, and screenwriter who moved in the same circles as Scotty. I asked Matt about his own friendship with Vidal. They were introduced in the 1990s by his Vanity Fair colleague, Christopher Hitchens. I'd always admired Vidal. Uh, He was my literary hero in many ways. And I had this perch at Vanity Fair where uh, Hitchens also had a perch. And the person I always thought should write for Vanity Fair was Gore Vidal. And he never really had, I don't think. Um, so I, it was my goal to get him in the pages of Vanity Fair. And Hitchens and he knew each other well. So I, through Hitchens, uh, contrived to meet him. And, you know, Christopher was very good at that type of thing. If you asked him a literary favor or really any type of favor, he would go out of his way to try to do it for you. And he really did it. Uh, he was um, that kind of old-fashioned kindness and... It's, it's sort of back scratching, but it's it's not really absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, he would bring his students to things, and uh, you, one of his students uh, at the new school, Rasha Salty, he introduced to me, and she later became a programmer at the Toronto Film Festival because of that. Yeah, so he was one of those connector people. He kind of had a salon going in Washington, uh, but I think it. You know, you you think of all these people as incredibly unapproachable. Uh, Hitchens really wasn't. He was very approachable, and he was really happy to do this. What turned out to be a massive good turn for me. Uh, not only did it fulfill the dream of meeting Gore Vidal, but then I did get him to write for Vanity Fair, and we became friends, and then I became his literary executor, which is the key to the Scotty Bowers story for me. Hmm. Uh, and when you say you were an admirer of Vidal, what were the particular aspects of his career that drew you most strongly? Oh, a kind of literary outlaw, um, modern-day Lord Byron, um, a stylish author with uh, politics as his main theme, writer against the grain, and as he would have put it, a homosexualist. Hmm. Uh, that's how he styled that word. Uh, and uh, well, didn't he have many different phases of of uh, how he would describe his sexuality? He was pretty consistent, actually. Is that he, right? He okay. didn't want. He he said at one point in print, uh, "The word gay has never passed my lips," and that was generational, but also very him. You know, to someone who was born in the twenties, gay meant something else. It was a it was a slang adopted by um, by uh, gay people um, as a kind of a code or a tell. Of course, it, the word meant happy, and it was in very heavy use, uh, uh, meaning happy. Uh, and this is relevant to the movie we're talking about today, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood, because the first known use of the word gay as a double entendre probably is bringing up baby with Cary Grant where he says famously wearing Catherine Hepburn's housecoat uh, I've just went gay all of a sudden and that clip is in the film because Cary Grant is very much in the film uh, because he's one of the people who had to leave double, lead double lives back in the, the golden age of Hollywood I mean I, we're getting ahead of ourselves here we can go back to Vidal and I can bring you through the door to the day I met Scotty Bowers. Yeah, please do. 
Well, Scotty was someone I'd heard about in the line of duty for Vanity Fair. I had a string of pieces over the years about uh, senior members of the Hollywood community. I, I sometimes called it the Norma Desmond beat because they were people generally who had had huge careers and were looking back on them. And I was kind of like the, um, the, the, the medium for them to reflect on their careers. One of those people was Merv Griffin, who was a really fascinating guy who uh, lived a double life. He never really came out, actually. Uh, but I did a big profile of him, which I, I found just I found him just fascinating. He was sort of like the runner-up to Johnny Carson, and he was so open about that. But he had a huge career, was very very wealthy through real estate. It's a producer as well as uh, behind as well as a frontman. He created Jeopardy and owned it, and and Wheel of Fortune and owned it. And he wrote the theme to Wheel of Fortune, which every time it's played, you know, shekels like dropped into his bank account. Uh, he was a really resourceful, fascinating, kind of um, not obvious powerhouse in Hollywood. And the not obvious part, I think, is key to this whole discussion we're having today, because there are all these stories behind the stories uh, in, in Hollywood and obviously everywhere, but particularly in Hollywood, I think, that are really fascinating to unearth. So in the course of interviewing Merv Griffin, he told me about old L.A., and he said there was a gas station on Hollywood Boulevard where you would go to get in trouble, which I love that euphemism, you know. <laughs> that was really the would have been the euphemism of the time. Uh, I, thought, I, was okay. I thought to myself, that's interesting, noted. And then a few years later, I did a piece on a really fascinating architect who was part of the gay community, the George Cukor set, the very elevated gay crowd back in the, starting in the 30s and 40s in LA. And he said there was a gas station on Hollywood Boulevard and oh boy, the cars were lined up around the block. And I said, okay, I have to figure out what this was. <laughs> One day I'm with Gore Vidal in his living room in the Hollywood Hills and he, apropos of nothing, announces, I want to find Scotty. I'm saying, who's Scotty? And he said, Scotty was my pimp. Now, if you knew Vidal, that wasn't really such a shocking thing to have him proclaim, <laughs> apropos of nothing. That's kind of the type of thing he would say. And I, so I said, tell me more. And he said, well, he had a gas station. I was like, okay, wait a minute. Oh, this guy is around. You know him and he's alive. And he said, he is. He lives in Laurel Canyon, but I've lost his contact. So long story short, uh, a book had come out recently called Kate, which was about the bisexuality of Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. It was in part about that. And quoted in that book was Scotty Bowers, who was quoted by name for the first time. He'd been quoted by pseudonym in many books, actually, and written about by many great literary figures, uh, including Bill Inge, who was the great playwright who wrote Picnic, hmm. uh, John Retchy, the, the transgressive gay novelist who wrote Sexual Outlaw. Uh, Scotty's in those books, but he's called Smitty and Sonny. So uh -huh. for the first time, he was Scotty Bowers in a major book. I knew Bill Mann. I called Bill. and Who's the author of the Kate book? Yes, Bill Mann, the author of Kate, uh, who's a historian who specializes in, uh, in gay Hollywood narratives, actually. Uh, he gave me immediately Scotty's contact. I wrote it on a post-it note, left it on Vidal's uh, side table where his bottle of scotch also sat always. And uh, the next time I went over to see him some months later, Scotty Bowers was in the room there. He was in the living room. I met him. 
he was. This was a coincidence. It wasn't that. It uh, wasn't planned at all. But what happened was, once he and Scotty got back together, they were almost inseparable for the last five years of Gore Vidal's life. And mind you, they had met in 1948 at this mythic gas station. And how long could they been out of touch? I think it was probably a decade. Okay. Because Vidal was really living in Italy full time. He had just started to move back to L.A. full time. And uh, his companion, Howard Austin, had died a few years before that. These were lonely years for him. So it, it makes a kind of incredible Proustian sense that uh, the uh, male madam of his uh, youth would still be around and re-enter his life after his companion of 54 years had died. There was something really epic about all this. Uh, this is not part of the movie, incidentally. No. Uh, it's not part of Scotty's memoir, uh, which preceded the movie uh, by a year or so, preceded the at least uh, the advent of making the film. So uh, at the time you met Scotty, um, I think you were also developing an idea to make a documentary about Gore Vidal. I was. Uh, after my first film, Valentino, The Last Emperor, uh, it seemed like a natural subject to tackle uh, Gore Vidal because of my relationship with him. So I toyed with the idea for a while. There were a few other projects out there, and um, one of them came to fruition that I had been a part of, but I, things happened, and I went on to other things. And also, for me, that was one that might have been a little too close, hmm. actually. I think as a documentarian, you want to get close, but you don't want to be too close. And my life was a little bit entangled with Vidal's as his executor. I think you can do a movie being really close in. You can do a movie being the, the partner, the romantic partner, but that's a different movie. Right. And I've never done anything like that. I'm not sure I, I ever will, but uh, there's a real distinction there. So it, the Gore Vidal movie didn't make sense to me. I eventually ended up as a talking head in The Best of Enemies, uh, which is directed by Morgan Neville, a very good film about William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal. Uh, well, I was very happy to contribute to that film because I got to tell a lot of the, uh, the, the story from Vidal's perspective. And uh, apparently, Morgan Neville told me there were not many people that were standing up for Gore Vidal. There were more people willing to stand up for Bill Buckley, which outraged me. I thought <laughs> Gore Vidal really needs to be defended. Um, so at the time you meet Scotty Bowers, he he hasn't yet written his memoir. What, do you, was he thinking about it? He had written it. Uh, and it was in a manuscript. I see. Okay. So this is really another compelling part of the backstory is that uh, people had asked Scotty Bowers, who when I met him was 89, about to turn 90, to write a memoir for years. And he would never do it because he didn't want to betray the trust of anyone, which in the context of the times in which he worked makes a lot of sense. Uh he had finally been convinced to do it by a group of friends. And I think everyone was really dead who was a bold-faced name, with, with a few exceptions, Gore Vidal being one of them. Uh, so he'd written this manuscript with a co-author, and he showed it to Gore Vidal, and Vidal said, I'll 
presumably said, I'll help you get this published. And within a few months, they had a deal. So it was in process. I met him and found him to be so sharp for 89, very, very uh, spry, and a great raconteur. So I started making that movie immediately. Uh, he, he gave me his blessing, and it was because of the Gore Vidal connection that there was an immediate bond of trust, which is essential, of course, when you're about to embark upon what turned out to be a two-year cinema verite shoot. Uh, that trust was almost complete and very solid just because of this uh, endorsement. In the film, we see the publication of the book and uh, and we, we follow him over uh, the next couple of years. Can you kind of set the stage here for, for Scotty Bauer's activity um, at the peak of his career of sexual fixing in uh, the 1940s, uh, 1950s, I don't get the impression from watching the film that he was a person who was greatly motivated by money. I think money was the farthest thing, really. I think he was motivated by, he says, in fact, a desire to make people happy. Now, that takes a lot of psychological unpacking, which I, happens in the film. Uh, you're never told, really, why anything happens in this film, uh, which is very much on purpose and very much the way I like to do things. I'm not a big believer in um, just telling the audience why something's occurring. I think the, the art of cinema verite is against that anyway. So it's mostly a verite film. It goes back and forth between uh, time frames. So it's, it's ping-ponging between the golden age of Hollywood, the post-war era in Hollywood, and the present day of a person who in the first minutes of the film turns 90. So I see the film as a mirrored hall of memories uh, for Scotty Bowers. And at the same time, uh, he becomes a symbol of a hidden world of Hollywood that by necessity uh, could not be public. Because in the period of the studio system, there were morals clauses in the big contracts. So not only was it not an accepted societal norm to have an alternative uh, sexuality. Um, but if you were gay or lesbian in Hollywood and it became publicly known, your career was over. So this was a very different time. And it makes sense that a figure like Scotty Bowers uh, could turn up in Hollywood as an ex-Marine right off the boat from the South Pacific and set up shop as a male madam in what seems at first like a very improbable venue, a gas station. So he invents the drive through brothel, really. <laughs> He's kind of the Ray Kroc of sex <laughs> in Southern he California. He didn't franchise, though. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. Because uh, he wasn't driven by money. That, yes, exactly. There you go. You've... I think you're getting at it. I mean, he really was a, he found a niche economy, I think. Uh, and yes, of course, 
you know, prostitution is the oldest profession. There's prostitution everywhere, I'm sure. Uh, Scotty's carriage trade were the kings and queens of Hollywood, and there was a really big necessity for a character, a figure in that town who was the mutual secret keeper. And in today's parlance, we would say he created a safe space. Now, we don't normally think of houses of prostitution as safe spaces, but this one very much was. And you can say, well, how do you know you weren't there in the 1940s? Well, a lot of people miraculously were alive who were witnesses to it. And I debriefed them on and off camera, and I never heard a bad word about this place, starting with Gore Vidal. And in fact, Scotty makes the point very clearly that many people over the years have told him that that gas station was the happiest place in their lives. And he would say that often. And I thought, well, this could just be the the thing that an old man says about something that was a golden period for his life. Well, one day we were with him having breakfast in a diner in Los Angeles, and uh, a male nurse came over and said, there's someone over there who knows you and wants to speak to you. And it was a man who was very old and in a wheelchair, even with an oxygen tank. And Scotty went over to him and remembered him. And I heard this guy say, that gas station was the best thing in my life. Thank you for doing that gas station thing. And Scotty's (laughs) face lit up. uh, And he did receive letters about this. So he had created uh, something out of a James Elroy novel, really, but with a much less sinister... um, cast to it, which was this secret space run out of this Richfield gas station at Hollywood and Van Ness, just a few blocks from the old Warner's lot and a few blocks from Paramount. All the old, old great studios were around there. Where Netflix stands today, I think. Uh, on the old Warner lot, yeah. Um, the freeway was cut in right next to the gas station. He was there before the freeway. And now we're getting at the kind of lapidary nature of the film because you begin to excavate old hidden Los Angeles, which is as a hometown Los Angeles boy, L.A. native. This was fascinating to me. The secrets of Hollywood and that city, forget Hollywood, just the city of Los Angeles. The, all of those layers are interesting to me because Los Angeles ignores its history, which is one of its charms, really sort of like Rome in that, you know, you have, Rome pays no attention to the fact that the Colosseum's there. Hmm. You know, there's a road two inches from the Colosseum. It's part of the charm. It's sort of the throwdown nature of the place. It's not that precious, but you lose a lot when you do that. And uncovering these lost secrets was really interesting to me. And this gas station became, for me, one of them, that I had the guy that created it um, locked in as a subject for my next film was incredibly inspiring to me. And then we went on this two-year uh, voyage together, uh, sifting through his past. And that's where he starts to walk down this mirrored corridor to, to find for himself um, what this past was. So, you know, I, I mean, I think watching the film and watching some of the other contemporary figures um, in Scotty's life speak about that time, it gets harder and harder to refute. Um, there there have been a contingent of, of people who are protectors of some reputations uh, in Hollywood. I've been reading reviews of uh, Scotty's book, uh, I remember a biographer of Spencer Tracy being called out and 
Cary Grant's daughter called out as as people who are real deniers of that these figures had secret histories. And and I wonder how you see that conversation going now. I think this is the never-ending conversation, it seems. The film hasn't even come out yet. We're about 10 days away. Uh, the New York Times wrote a lead piece in the arts section yesterday. And in it was quoted a film historian uh, named Janine Basinger, who takes the pearl-clutching, um, dismissive stance that uh, this person is full of it, and I don't want to know this, and I doubt it's true anyway. And she says, I think, something that I prefer to focus on the on-screen work of these people. Um, Twitter lit up yesterday, I was glad to see, um, pushing back on this, um, pointing out that this particular film historian scholarship um, in large part focuses on the sort of meta-relationship between the stars' lives and their performances. They started to wonder, well, why when the subject is homosexuality is this suddenly a verboten topic when it is in the realm of heterosexuality, it's okay to talk about. I think for me, that's the key to unlocking a lot of the uh, outrage that surfaced when Scotty published his book. And now that this movie is on the horizon, seems to be welling up again. Uh, I find it very interesting. I find it um, somewhat upsetting, actually, uh, in, a, in an interesting way. Uh, people have said to me in sort of coded things about Scotty Bowers and the prospect of the film, such as, oh, well, that's not my cup of tea. Hmm. Um, I wonder, like, what does that phrase really mean? Why isn't it your cup of tea? Um, and i beginning to sense that these things are codes that are have stuck with us you can't say, oh, I don't like stories about gay people. Or I don't want to hear about messy sex lives of people that were having sex with other women, having sex with other women. or That just disturbs me. You can't say that in polite society now. But you can say things like, that's not my cup of tea, or I prefer to focus on the work of Catherine Hepburn and not hear about these other details. Uh, this seems to me to be a very parochial attitude and uh, one that is uh, falls squarely into the category of homophobia. The other thing that's surprising about that attitude, if you actually watch the film, is that Scotty uh, is a is a wholly joyous person. There's nothing dark about this period um, or these secrets. These are people who were fulfilling their desires. It's very clear to me that Scotty was a benign figure who helped people live authentic lives in a particular town where it was impossible for them to do so because of the law. The law was not on their side. The vice squad was very, very active at this time. So it's the Los Angeles Police Department working in collusion with the press frequently to blackmail movie stars, and not just movie stars, but other prominent figures. And you see this in a movie like L.A. Confidential. I mean, this stuff's mythic, right? But Scotty was actually a character 
who was operating um, at great risk, facilitating uh, the desires of people who were really victims of persecution at the hands of their own city's police force. Uh, and this, I think, makes him a rather heroic figure. Uh, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, this frequently mentioned position that Cary Grant is a perfect specimen of male movie stardom and that you will ruin Cary Grant for me by proving or putting on display evidence of his same sexuality. Now, as I say that, it sounds unbelievable to me that I have heard this frequently over the course of making this movie. That is kind of the reflex reaction of a certain type of individual who loves to talk about the prospect of this movie, but their initial reaction, and it usually is about Cary Grant, is, I don't want to know that about Cary Grant. You're just going to ruin him for me. And I I don't know how to deal with that. I'm not sure why they feel they can even say it, to be right. honest with you. I, I get well, it. We know why they can say it. Yes. Well, it's, it's, said, it's said with good humor. It's, it's all jolly when it's being said. But what, the implications of it are somewhat disturbing um, and point to a lot of things. Firstly, the power of the myth of the movies that the studio system created. Cary Grant's very famous, his most famous quote is, everyone wants to be Cary Grant, even I want to be Cary Grant. Hey, I rest my case. <laughs> I mean, he was in on it. You know, he was no fool. Let me ask you about uh, Scotty's connection to Alfred Kinsey. So Alfred C. Kinsey, the author of The Kinsey Report, is really also the author of The Sexual Revolution. And particularly for gay men, uh, and then a little bit later, uh, lesbian uh, women. The first Kinsey Report was uh, the book that tore the lid off of human sexuality and established authoritatively that homosexuality was not a mental illness and not a rare uh, form of degeneracy, but in fact very widespread among the population. What I've discovered through people like uh, Gore Vidal and other men of that generation is that the Kinsey Report just wasn't the Kinsey Report, which now seems like a footnote along the way to opening up our um, liberal society in the second half of the 20th century. The Kinsey Report was an earthquake for uh, people who had same-sex orientations because it told them and assured them that they weren't freaks or outlaws, uh, or uh, the term of the time was degenerates. Uh, can you imagine the relief you might feel having this book that was written about in the mainstream media, which is a key to this? So the New York Times and Time Magazine, like he was, uh, Kinsey was on the cover of Time Magazine. It was the rage. It was a very daring, bold stroke, uh, and a, a really kind of shifted the conversation. And it shifted for the first time uh, the uh, conversation about same sexuality out of the realm of uh, whispering shame into sensible 
public discussion. So people like Vidal, who himself was actually interviewed by Kinsey because Kinsey was a, a great reporter. You know, he was uh, taking all this empirical information and data. He was interested in people who had lots of experiences, and I think Vidal qualified. Yes, Vidal qualified for that, and a lot of people did. And Kinsey also discovered that, you know, that a lot was going on, basically, which everyone probably suspected, but no one had any proof for. So that was another reason that it was a big um, sensation about what Preston Sturgis called Topic A. <laughs> uh, Scotty was another behind-the-curtain figure in the Kinsey story. He was one of those sexual unicorns who Kinsey sought out and interviewed and used for um, his data. And then it turns out that Scotty was a connector person for Kinsey and introduced him to a lot of people and a lot of networks of mostly gay but also lesbian people who were um, living very active sex lives. And Kinsey needed entree into these circles because he lived in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. He was a professor of zoology <laughs> <laughs> of all places, Bloomington. Indiana University, where Scotty was airlifted, in fact, to participate in a lot of the Kinsey studies. And this goes back to the, um, well, is there proof for Scotty's stories? I called the Kinsey Institute, which is still up and running, uh, and they immediately said to me, oh, Scotty Bauer is one of our biggest files. Absolutely. Know all about him. Now, those files are under a, a covenant of confidentiality, which was the only way Kinsey was able to do his research. But they described to me what was in the file. And uh, Scotty um, connected Kinsey to a lot of Hollywood figures. He introduced him to Rock Hudson. And it is documented in Hudson biographies that he was reading the Kinsey Report in the 40s and uh, actually was very relieved by the Kinsey hmm. Report. And George Cukor, who would have been another person who was living in the closet, really, um, the great director, who then eventually made a movie about Kinsey called The Chapman Report which was one of his worst movies. I didn't know that. Uh, and Scotty introduced him to Kinsey and facilitated Cukor's research with Kinsey. Hmm. So we've talked a lot about same-sex relationships uh, in this book, but Scotty uh, is kind of more fluid uh, than that. And in the film, we see he has a, uh, a wife of many years. Uh, what do you think Scotty's story says about sexuality? Well, I think it's very Kinsey in that Kinsey had a scale, which was another revelation at the time. Uh, and you could slide around the scale. It was a scale of heterosexuality to homosexuality. Yes. And um, what he pointed out is that everyone's different, basically. And not only are we all different, but we're all different in many different phases of our lives. This was, again, you know, just this revolutionary way of looking at it. We'd all been so deranged by uh, the church and religion and you know, societies. Um, and Hollywood. Well, yes, exactly. That kind of uh, societal normal. Hollywood, Hollywood's strict moral code was a product of the church, really, because in the early days of Hollywood, there was a libertine um, cast to it. 
there was a lot of ribald. Um, uh, there were a lot. There was a lot of ribald storytelling. There was even some nudity in early films. Before, it's called pre-code. And what is that code? That code was the production code that was uh, implemented because uh, specifically the Catholic Church started to uh, rise up against Hollywood and the perceived uh, immorality of this uh, Sodom and Gomorrah on the Pacific. And the studio's way of dealing with that, being very commercial, was to say, whoa, whoa, okay, we'll self-police because we don't want you getting into our business. So we'll establish uh, with government oversight a code of conduct. And that was uh, the precursor to the story we're talking about today because that led to the morals clauses and the stars contracts where you had to, in order to keep your employment in good standing, uh, be seen as an upright moral citizen, which meant that you were uh, heterosexual, male or female, um, not living in sin. And that was your on-screen image and it was to be your off-screen image in the public uh, arena. That led to uh, the Vice Squad as a racket in the city of Los Angeles and basically it was a, uh, pu a publicly sanctioned extortion ring that persecuted gay and lesbian people. Scotty Bowers was the protector of a lot of these people's uh, reputations because he provided a safe harbor for them. And I'll dig a little deeper here. The reason that he was so safe was that he was trusted and he was endorsed by the leading figures of the town, George Cukor, Cole Porter, Cary Grant. All these people knew him, liked him, trusted him. So if their word about Scotty could be taken to the bank, then that was all the assurance he needed. The way he did it, I can describe very briefly. He always knew both ends. So he would know the sex worker and trust him. And then if someone came to him uh, asking for um, a connection and he didn't know that person and didn't know about them, he pretended that he was just serving up gasoline and uh, you know window washing. Uh, you had to really know Scotty in order for the system to work for you, and that's how he protected people. As I wrap this up, I was thinking about this era of real secrecy uh, around homosexuality, and then I think about the last 20 years of a different kind of openness around sexuality, and I recognize how many gay men have been sort of crucial to to that period. I think of someone like Dan Savage or the writers of Sex and the City or, you know, even George Michael kind of writing the anthem of freedom. Um, and, and it feels ironic that a class of men who historically had to uh, be secretive about their sexuality today, I think, are instrumental in helping everyone open up about their sexuality. Uh, well, the one thing, we started this conversation talking about Gore Vidal, and I think we can go back to him here. This is another reason that he was a hero of mine. Uh, when he was uh, 19, I think, he published a book called The City and the Pillar, which was his third novel. He might have been in his early 20s, but anyway, his third novel was a very young man, just out of World War II. This was the first novel to 
have a character who was frankly uh, homosexual or same-sex oriented in the English language. Uh, and he was uh, celebrated for it in some circles, and he was excoriated for it in others. And he frequently said, ad infinitum, almost every day I ever spent with him, he reminded me that the New York Times refused to review any other book by him for the next, I think, 20 years after The City and the Pillar was reviewed in the Times negatively. So <laughs> this is astonishing for us to realize that this happened within our parents' and grandparents' lifetime. So Vidal was really courageous, and Sir Ian McKellen, I think, he said to me, approached him one day and said, Gore, you really need to do more for the movement. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, McKellen came out rather late in life. So Vidal, I think, was outraged by this. (laughs) And he said, well, I think I've done enough. I destroyed my career. I was referring to his early career, where he really did have to write under a pseudonym after that. So I think it's very easy to forget how bad things were and how really brave and fearless you needed to be to be open in any way about your true identity. And this is really what the movie's about. The movie is to remind us that there was a world not that long ago that was in many ways centered around Hollywood and the studio system that required us all to live um, white picket fence lives or straight washed (laughs) existences. And this was a really oppressive, terrible time. And you couldn't do or say much about it. And if you did, you ran the risk of ruining your life. So I think if you see the story of Scotty Bowers in that context, this man who is easily dismissed as, oh, a pimp or, you know, a procurer or like a former male hustler becomes a very different kind of figure in a very different light who really did something very brave and heroic and helpful to a lot of people who... I have seen with my own eyes and in many interviews, really deeply appreciated him for it. That he's alive to tell his own story, he's 95 this month, and sharp as ever, I think is extraordinary. And I think that everyone should have open ears and eyes to taking this in and not so quickly dismiss it as... Uh, Hollywood shenanigans or something unseemly or unsightly, because I think there's actually a human rights message at the core of what Scotty Bowers did. I think that all of the people who helped him and participated and uh, took advantage of his services were in a way, perhaps unwittingly, uh, committing a political act by um, flouting the law which you had to do in most cities when you were uh, a queer person in that era. So this is a window into a forgotten world. I don't think we can just say good riddance to that and then not think about it anymore. I think we really need to look back and seriously think about how we got to now and who the people were who got us here.
I want to thank Matt Turnauer for speaking with me. His film, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood, is now playing in theaters. This interview was recorded at the School of Visual Arts at the MFA Social Documentary Program. Thanks to our team, series producer, Sarah Modo, sound recordist, Eric Spink, sound mixer, Tom Micah, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. I invite you to listen to our short-form podcast, Documentary of the Week, from WNYC. You'll find over 170 documentary recommendations. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.